Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we spoke to the novelist and short story writer, Tessa Hadley. We spoke to Tessa about being published for the first time in her 40s, about writing short stories for The New Yorker alongside her novels, and about her latest book, Free Love. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. So Tessa, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on Always Take Notes. Um, We wanted to start with Free Love, with the new book, uh, the story of a suburban woman who abandons her husband and children to take up with a younger man in London. Where did the idea come from? And is it right that it initially developed from a short story? Yes, it is. I I wrote, mostly I've sort of put my fictional spaces inside my own time frame, but I hadn't really gone back as far as the 1960s very often. I wrote a short story set, I think, in the same year as Free Love is set, 1967, and also actually sort of set in in my idea of Thames Valley uber suburbia and I just love doing it so much it's as if for some reason I found that place and that moment very congenial so the story sat with me for a while but I had the sense I could do it had potential it had somewhere to go not that particular story not that particular girl but that ambience and that moment in British cultural life. So when did the idea of Phyllis in particular take shape in your mind? It came so blessedly this novel which is certainly not always the case and needless to say the one I'm struggling with now is quite the opposite and it's it's been so fraught finding what the story was and where it should start and all that stuff. Free Love just fell into my lap. I had that so I had place and time not 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 as a plan but as a sort of rich opportunity if you like and somewhere When I was just playing with the idea of another novel, and I can come back to that, that's a really important thing, that that the novels have to begin in a playful space, not in a, oh dear, now I'm sitting down, now I must get the plan for the new novel I'm going to start in a week or something, because that would put all the wrong kind of pressure on. But in a playful space, I, I had my time and I had my place, and then it just seemed inevitable that this half silly, pretty, middle-aged woman who who was both likeable and in a way irresponsible but who was intense enough to carry my story she she seemed the minute I had her I've literally got three pages in my notebook where the whole of the story comes with her I write I write my woman is this age and this happens to her and she kisses someone at a dinner party and she has this son and this daughter and that's her husband and this is the young man and then this happens. And it was just one of those blissful sort of gifts which which only come once in a blue moon. 
I wanted to ask you about the idea of the 1960s kind of in in capital letters. And I, I mean, I remember reading, and I don't actually recall where this was, but I, maybe in a, in a history, but saying that the notion that we have of the 60s of sexual liberation and music and culture was actually quite a narrow experience. And mm. that, you know, it was a small, often urban cohort yeah. that had that and that most people got married in their early 20s and lived rather conventional lives as people had before. Do you think do you think that's that's true, firstly? And is that a, something you were riffing on with this book? Yeah, I do think it's true. I mean, my own teenage life was in the 70s, which is the the point at which I think all of that really radical shift in perception and aspiration and sense of the shape of things, that that's when it gets out to the provinces, as it were. But so, so yes, I think that's really true of the 60s. And as a writer, that makes it so ripe for exploitation because you have your contrast so close at hand between the straightness, you know, men are still wearing hats and, and carrying rolled umbrellas to work and women are still wearing gloves to the shops. And then down the road, people are growing their hair down to their navels, men, and taking drugs and wearing caftans. And that sort of extreme juxtaposition is, is great for, for writing or for filmmaking, for art. Did you do a lot of research then or was it a period that you felt you knew enough about already that you could just plunge in and and you know build that world from what you already knew I I was a child then so I had one kind of deep reservoir of material and in fact you know I think it's almost the it's the important one so I knew what things smelled like and I knew what color they were and I knew what people were eating and what they were wearing because that's the stuff a child remembers. A lot of the sociology and the kind of politics, obviously I've layered over that just just by thinking and reading ever since and by living as, a, as an heir to that period. Um, I did do a little bit of... Re- I'm not a great researcher. Somehow the idea of sort of stodgily reading for months and then turning it into fiction is like... Antipath- it sounds like school to me, that horrible thing where you... You have to read a lovely book and then at the end there's a great wodge of nasty questions you have to answer about it. Well, that's what that feels like. So I tend to think, make it up and then check it afterwards. That's that's my model of research. It's a, it's it's a, it's not the whole truth. I did I I did have one book in particular was invaluable, which which my old publisher, Dan Franklin, my lovely publisher at Cape. He actually published it in the 80s. It's called A Day in the Life or Days in the Life by Jonathan Green. And it's a compendium of all the people who really were there in Labbrook Grove and Islington and, and crazy London in the hippie scene. And it's exactly what a writer would want. It's just them holding forth with anecdotes and memories and above all with the right idiom, because that's, that's what I didn't have because you don't remember it afterwards. How exactly would someone have phrased what they felt about the sexual revolution or what a woman felt about a man or or what straight people felt about hippies? How? What's the right phrase to use? What did they say? And some of the stuff that even sounds exaggerated or cliched in my book, you know, people saying, well, we, we're, we just think if we all everyone dropped acid at the same time there would be world peace I mean that that was the real thing that comes out of that book and people remembered it so so that was a precious bible 
that sometimes happens with a novel that you get a a bible for that novel the a source something you're going to draw a lot from and this decision to tell it from multiple characters perspectives at what stage in the composition process did that come to the fore well that has to be straight away really i mean unless unless you you make an error with a book and you try telling it from one perspective and suddenly think that really really is narrow and it's constraining me but it's actually something i've done kind of i think i've done it all along from the very beginning i've had this sense i know it it, it is a little it, it used to be what everybody did it used to be how everybody wrote novels like they would just give consciousness and be inside the heads of all their characters that they wanted to be and it sort of grew unfashionable for some good reasons and some bad and it's the default position now would be either a first person narrative or a very close third person or perhaps alternation of two voices but my own instinct is for me here's a scene here are six people sitting around in a room together it's rich with stuff happening between them and you can simply multiply the richness by not only having him looking at her wondering who she is fancying her or not or and then her looking at her and her looking at him and you're just multiplying your effects it's like building up a picture by by taking you know a composite from many directions. So I've actually done that for a long time now, and that is what I tend to do as my default position. I have written one novel which was all in the first person, and I'm glad I did that, and I think it was all right, but I think I wouldn't do it again. I, I realised, I mean, the pitfalls of that are, you do spend a lot of time, the reader spends a lot of time, let alone the writer, with with one voice and one interpretation, and you have to get that right so that it's characterful, they, that person can think all the things you need to be thought about what's happening and it doesn't become tiresome. So there's, it's, it's hard. I really enjoyed the dramatic irony, actually, of that dinner party scene when Phyllis and Nikki first meet and she's, you know, trying to flirt with him and thinks he's completely uninterested and repulsed by her and then he isn't at all. Um, could we track back now to your early life? Um, am I right in thinking that you were passionate about reading from a, from a young age? Yes, I was. I was that cliche of the writer, uh, not very good, uh, very shy and not, not, not at all friendless with a few very intense friendships with very close girlfriends, um, always actually, and, but definitely living a lot of my life inside fiction. Yep, yep. I can almost remember the beginnings of that. I can remember one book which I've tried to trace I've no idea what it was. It seemed to be called The Small Smalls. And it was about, it was all done in black and white and blue illustrations. And it was a little family with Mr. and Mrs. Small and the Small Smalls. And I feel as if that sort of cast the die there and then for, you know, ordinary people leading quite small lives being really bottomlessly interesting. And I always, as a child, I'm afraid I always preferred realism to fairy tales. I kind of had to grow to appreciate fantasy and fairy tales as an adult. So is it right that you were particularly into series? So Swallows and Amazons and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, which I suppose is a funny kind of realism. I'd certainly never been on a boat. So, you know, it was... Didn't Arthur Ransom cover the Russian Revolution? He did, he did. Did he not marry Lenin's secretary, I think? Which no one yeah. ever knows when they read those. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I certainly didn't at the time. But yet there was... 
the, the promise that series held out was marvellous to me. Anne of Green Gables, Swallows and Amazons, others. There was a non-fiction series called The Young Victoria, The Young General Wolf. I can't remember who the others were. Um, but the, the sense that it didn't stop at the end of the book, that life went on into another book beyond it, was very um, appealing. Yeah, I didn't want it to stop. Interesting then that you've not written a series yourself. Is that something that it was a, an enjoyable sort of pursuit as a child, but as an adult and as a writer, you've thought, actually, I'm happy with my standalone stories? I think series for adults. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. I th- what do I think about that? When I began to read grown-up books in that same library where I'd borrowed assiduously the Anne of Green Gables and the Swallows and Amazons, I think I was drawn to complete works. So maybe that's my version of the series. I, I was drawn to those uniform editions of Elizabeth Bowen, uh, other people who I now ca- have no idea what they were like. How did I make any sense of them? Like Hugh Walpole and Compton Mackenzie and other Edwardian luminaries who filled the shelves of libraries in the 1960s. And they, they had the same binding. So I guess I thought, first of all, that they were a continuation of the same story. And I think... I think that is what I think. I think that a complete works by somebody or the, the best works of somebody are, are a series. Not, not They don't have the same characters in, they may not tell the same stories, but they kind of add up to the whole map of that person's mind and their world picture. So that's my adult version. It just write another, write another book that fills in another little bit of the map. And you went to Cambridge in the late 1970s. You said that you you were kind of ambiguous about it. And I saw in another interview that this was to do with kind of not feeling clubbable. Is that right? That you you hadn't been in either the brownies and things had not been for you it's earlier. How did, how did that work in the context of, of higher education in particular? I always think I want to join something because I want to read the book about it. It's terribly appealing. But when I get there, I discover in the case of brownies that I can't start a fire or whatever it was and ballet. I didn't seem to be able to get into the first position and Cambridge was much the same. It was a strange place in the mid-70s for women, young women, in that I was at one of three mixed colleges which had only just gone mixed, I think, one or two years before I got there, which which might sound as if you it would be terribly exciting and there would be lots of men. Uh, there were lots of men, but I'm not sure how interested they were in the beleaguered little cluster of girls who were there. Uh, it was fraught and I didn't love it. I just, I liked it. I quite liked it. I liked one or two teachers I had, I thought were marvellous and transfiguring. And I loved and I'm eternally grateful for long, long days and weeks um, reading and thinking about books. But um, it, it wasn't, it, it was socially, culturally, I, I didn't feel very comfortable there. We may be jumping ahead a little bit here, but um, am I right in thinking you wrote quite a few novels as a young woman and and failed to find a publisher for them? Um, And if so, what was that experience like? And and do you have a sense of why readers at those publishing houses sort of passed on them? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is absolutely right. And I do definitely have a sense of why they passed on them. I think because they were awful. (laughs) And... um... (laughs) Fair enough. <laughs> not, I mean, I, <laughs> they were right. I, I think there's a, there's a funny kind of, um, to flatter myself, 
I would like to think there's a funny kind of awful that happens when when one day maybe you will be able to do it, but you're you're not just like you're not halfway there. You're really catastrophically failing to do the thing that maybe one day you find a way of doing. That like, that probably doesn't make any sense, but anyway, I think I was trying to write other people's books. I was still in a very submissive, admiring and worshipping phase as a reader. I was reading much too many classics and not enough contemporary fiction. I was, you know, and then if there, if I was reading contemporaries, I was reading Nadine Gordimer and thinking, well, I'll try and write a great novel like her novels of the apartheid era in South Africa, but I'll set it in South Wales where I was then living and do live again now. So there was some unspeakable novel about the miners' strike, which I'm glad is now rotted down in landfill. And uh, but I, I, it wasn't me. I, I wasn't saying what I thought. I was saying what I thought someone else should write. And in the moments when I did finally start putting down the first sentences that were true, to some extent, it was an accepting that the terrain was small. It was what it was. It was my world, not my life, but my world. I can remember some of the first sentences I wrote that felt true were about a woman visiting Cardiff Museum, actually with a child in a wheelchair. That, that's not, that was not directly connected to my life, but somehow something, something in there clicked and I was, I was, I was fully me, utilising what I thought about things, what I had to say. I recognised the sound of myself. So, but that took a long time. There were about four awful, effortful, goody-good kind of novels before that. I'd seen um, elsewhere that you said that you don't regret that period, that you, you know, that you don't regret that you weren't published till till later on. And I wondered, just kind of reading that, if if you went back and were able to meet yourself at 25 or 35 and who was really struggling and, and told her that, you know, this is good for you and you won't regret this, how would, how would your younger self have responded? Do you I'm pretty annoyed, I should think. <laughs> it was te- it was terribly miserable. It's terribly miserable writing and failing. It was the only thing in the world I thought I wanted to do or would... Well, I didn't think I would be any good at it, but there's anything in the world I really wanted to do. And it's, you know, you write for two years and somewhere you know you don't have a good feeling, but you you hold out this hope that you're wrong, that actually it's a masterpiece and when somebody else sees it, it'll be okay. Um, and then someone tells you, on the contrary, it isn't okay, it was a bit boring or they didn't. And, and uh, that's, it's very devastating. So it's a really mean thing in later life to smugly say it was all worth it, all that suffering, it was good for me. It was, it probably was, I don't know, was it? good for me what does that mean it would have gone to my head if I'd been published in my 30s I'd have been having a wild riotous partying time and much too much fun it was good to feel like nobody and lost and uh failure (laughs) not good for good good for me as a writer I think yes not good necessarily for my moral soul but good to feel Ordinary, actually. I mean, yeah, I, I am ordinary, but good, good to be down there at the school playground with only this slightly furtive, humiliating secret identity as a writer. That that 
that gives you a lot of good material. You did co-author um, short stories for children with your husband um, early on. How did that work logistically? What was it about the format that suited you and has continued to suit you ever since? That, that was an anomaly. That was an oddity. Very early on, when I just had my first baby, I think, a friend of ours had been commissioned to do some folktales for Cambridge University Press, and he was a teacher, he didn't have time. I said we'd do them. I wrote half. Eric wrote the other half. We had enormous fun. I I must have had a friend babysitting, I think I did, looking after my little boy. And I'd go to the university library and take out dusty old marvellous collections of folktales from the 19th century and then turn them into something... And I th- I knew I could do that. I did them. I find them a bit showy now. I mean, I never look at them, but when I have looked at them. And a bit, yeah. But I, I, I had a sense of power and that I, 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 I could smartly accomplish that. That was good. That sort of probably sat in there somewhere encouraging me. But it was a one-off and I don't think there's any resemblance between those little folky retellings of those stories which I'm not even sure they're right for children really I don't know what they are beautiful illustrations so I don't know if there's any connection between that and what came later actually that was almost like an oddity what do you think about the changing kind of cultural weight of the short story as form as something you know if you think back to before the second world war that there was this huge market for it with magazines and there's a lot of money in it and then it seemed that in a sense, it went through a period in the wilderness, but there has been a, a return to popularity to to that mm. genre. What have you? What do you feel about the short story as literary form? I mean, I love it as a literary form. I love it, and therefore I'm still sad that magazines don't have them anymore. I don't know why the Sunday Times magazine doesn't have one every week. Perhaps you know, but but it it is probably it cost lack of people. I don't know, I don't know. Do people want to read stories in magazines still? It was. I remember picking up a copy of some good housekeeping magazine. It wasn't good housekeeping. It was a short-lived housekeeping magazine of the 50s. had stories by Doris Lessing and Roy Fisher, I think that was his name. You know, significant writers with real literary writers, and they were marvellous. That's to be mourned. I don't... I. I suppose what keeps it up these days is online and creative writing teaching and creative writing competitions because it's the perfect length for that, which worries me just a little bit because we need not just practitioners, we desperately need readers. And we also, it's very nice to be able to make a living from short story writing and I'm not sure, I, I shouldn't think anybody's doing that anymore. Unless they, and well... I mean, the New Yorker, where I'm very lucky to be published, you you, you possibly could if you were terribly productive and lived very frugally. Um, and, and they wanted two or three stories from you a year. Of short stories and novels, is there a medium which you find easier or more enjoyable? And how does your process differ, if it does, between the two? I, in In one sense, a short story is sort of obviously easier in that if it goes wrong... You can throw it away slightly. You will have pangs and feel low for a few days, but but it's it's only taken you whatever a month, six weeks to write. So 
a, a novel a novel is just such a commitment such a chunk of your life such a huge i sometimes have the feeling that you're like a nomad dragging your home behind you except it's not just your home it's a whole world a whole universe of people and relationships and story and atmospheric and and you're you're pulling it behind you a long distance so short story seems playful and therefore one has a kind of audacity in writing them I think a novel you have to be more is at stake Elizabeth Bowen says that it's in her stories that she's fantastic her short stories that she's fantastical and perhaps supernatural whereas the novel the novel feels like a very real terrain to me there's something pragmatic and daily about the sheer length of it I mean what's wonderful about the sheer length of a novel a realist novel in particular is that it's like life it has hours in it to fill and you can go lots of places and come back again and find things are not quite as they as you left them um it's it's sort of it feels like a long stretch of experience which is the wonder of the form. I don't think anything else is like that. A film isn't like that or a play isn't like that. Um, so I love that about it. Of course, one has to be very careful that it doesn't therefore become turgid or boring or repetitive. It, it still it still has to also be thrilling on every page, if you can make it be that. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist and short story writer Tessa Hadley. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests that we've had on the show. So this week we're going to hear from the journalist and author George Packer and he's going to tell you about a time in his career that he failed. I spent 10 years writing two novels and they could be called failures. They're not terrible, um, although I don't look at them much anymore, but they never found many readers and what writers need above all um, are readers. And so that was a long and I would say depressed and depressing period of my life. And why I spent 10 years, crucial years doing that is uh, a little hard to say other than that I just had it in my head that I was a novelist and therefore I, therefore I had to write novels, which is not a very good reason to write novels. They should come out, uh, out of uh, some more organic impulse. But what I did learn was to write narrative. And that stood me in very good stead when I started getting journalism assignments from magazines like The New Yorker, because I already knew how to write a narrative, how to create characters, how to tell stories with scenes and dialogue. So they were not totally wasted years, but at the time they were kind of a, a rock bottom of my life as a writer. That was George Packer. And if you were interested in what George had to say, you can listen to our full interview with him via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. But for now, back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Tessa Hadley. Could you tell us about your decision to do a creative writing MA at Bath, um, about where, where you were in your life more generally at that stage and then what the experience of doing it was like? It, it was 
so valuable to me. It was that turning point where where I, I can remember writing those first sentences. Now, why was that? I was very sceptical when I went on to the course. I I was not a believer. There weren't that many creative writing courses actually in in the UK then. Um, I thought none of the writers I admire have ever been on anything so humiliating as a creative writing course. But I also thought, I'm going to die if I, if I let me test this thing. And I, and if I, if it's no good and I can't do it, I must stop because I'm just going to be so miserable. I didn't know if I could stop. And in a way, I do think that is the, the sign of a real writer, maybe that insanely against all the evidence and all the odds you can't stop you would like to stop and do something reasonable like other people do and you you're failing and failing again but you... anyway so I went on it very skeptically but it also it was exciting for me I'd, I'd had three children then and I had my one of my stepsons also living with us so I was, it was a full-on household and that was my life and the little righty bits the reading always 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 and the writing sort of felt like my private space. And this was this was a, a, a new conjunction between the private space of reading and writing and then the world. And actually, I just loved being back in the world and all the things I hadn't got from Cambridge, in fact. A sort of a joy at being part of the intellectual life, a joy at being smart a joy at reading and talking about books with other people. That was rich. I had a lovely, lovely year. I had some very good teachers. I, I was at Bath Spa University, which wasn't called, it was called Bath College of Higher Education then. And it was a lovely phenomenon, sort of in the 80s and 90s, this was in the early 90s, where a lot of extremely bright people ended up, there was a kind of surplus of very qualified intellectual postgraduates who ended up in colleges of higher education and new universities and you you often had a lot more access to them than you would have done had you gone to seek their equivalents out in some of the big Russell Group universities so it was it was there were some lovely teachers there I had some lovely fellow students I had a very very good time and um, somewhere in the middle of that not because anybody nobody can teach you to write of course they can't but first of all, they give you a living context in which you can write and be read. They give you an audience and that I've always felt is so crucial. I had been, it's like one hand clapping what I've been doing, writing alone for myself alone and then posting these things out. My mum used to read them, but you know, hey. Um, and, and suddenly you're writing on Tuesday night thinking this little piece I'm doing is going to be read by those seven people on Thursday and I know them and this will bore them and it's not good enough. It's not as good as what she did last week. And you lift your game in response to audience. And I've actually always thought, including all the years when I taught on that same MA, uh, that that learning to write for an audience and watching those people who could do that, who, who changed their game and upped it for their fellow students and for the tutors, that that was a crucial part of it. And yeah, having some lovely editors among the staff who, as I say, you can't teach anyone to write, but you can certainly say this bit of your novel is boring and 
why is it going here? This feels like a misdirection and so on. So, so that sort of editorial function that once upon a time was inside publishing houses. Or, or, or was it? I mean, I feel that families, Jane Austen wrote for her family, or coffee houses, or sets of friends, D.H. Lawrence writing for those bright, bursting with energy, young, you know, pretty bourgeois intellectuals, I suppose you'd call them, of his Nottingham milieu, with their sort of t bit of evangelism. And uh, it's, I think writers have always actually found a, a context to talk to and be read by. And the MA courses are just a new version of that. And you acquired an agent uh, around that time when you were a student there. Um, how did that come about? Uh, it was actually afterwards. What happened was, let me just get this in the right order. I The novel I wrote on the MA was a bit of a mess. It was a hybrid. It had good things in it that I felt were different. But as a novel, it, overall, it didn't work. And I sort of knew that. And I can't even remember. I must have sent that to somebody did I did I finish it not sure can't remember and then I did think partly I love being in this world I love being in the world I don't want to go on just being a housewife really disguising myself as a housewife so I did a PhD on Henry James there at the same place and while I was doing that I also got a job there teaching partly teaching English so is an astonishing period of my life. I am actually naturally very lazy, but I was working full-time teaching. I was finishing my PhD on James, and I was at the same time writing my first novel, which did get published, and looking after four children. I mean, what? Where did, where did that surge of energy come from, which has never been repeated since? It was marvellous time. And so and it was sort of almost with my left hand while I... Well, with my right hand, I, I suppose I sort of became an academic, sort of, a little bit, trying it on for size and perhaps didn't completely fit, but I was enjoying aspects of it. I wrote my first novel, which is published as Accidents in the Home, with my left hand. And then, to answer your question, um, I showed it to a colleague, Richard Francis, a novelist, who showed it to his agent, Carolyn Dorney, Dorney who is still my lovely agent now and she took me on and then a phone call came to my office one day and said Jonathan Cape would like to buy your book and I found my best friend and she said well that changes everything and it did. And then Accents in the Home was accepted in the New Yorker how did that come about and then how has your relationship with with the magazine developed and what has that what has that meant for you um, since then? At the same time that I sold, first of all, I sold Accidents in the Home in the UK to Dan Franklin at Cape. And at the same time, or just afterwards, um, my British agent, Carolyn, arranged for Joy Harris to be my agent in America. And she sold it to Jennifer Bath, who was then at Henry Holt. I'm still with marvellous Jennifer. I've moved with her now twice to different publishers and now with her at Knopf and um, she took one chapter the first chapter of the novel although the novel is structured very much we can talk about this more if you like as a series of short stories actually 
um she took so it was it was ready to be turned into a short story that first chapter she showed that to deborah treisman at the new yorker which um i think deborah was quite new i think she was quite newly the fiction editor then so probably i was just you know i was very lucky partly in that she no doubt wanted some new writers of her own and she and i have gone on she's gone on liking most of the stories I sent her, not all of them, ever since. And that's just a, a kind of unlooked for joy, I can't tell you. There was a, there's a marvellous, there's a sort of story of rags to riches in that once, very early on, before I did the MA, when I was failing, I did meet an agent in London, Gina Pollinger, her name was, and she was nice to me and sort of said, well, keep, you know, there's something in this you're doing keep writing the short stories, send them out there. And I said, in my foolish innocence, because everybody I loved had this, like Updike and Nadine Gordemans, had their stories in the New Yorker. I said, should I send them to the New Yorker? And I just saw her exchange a glance of contempt and derision and sort of like, what? With her assistant. I caught it and, 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 knew what it meant immediately and that I was ridiculous and absurd. So you can imagine how lovely it was when I did actually get my first story accepted in The New Yorker. I had to then subscribe to The New Yorker. I didn't even know what it looked like or what the format was or anything. I was going to say, yeah, you showed her. Um, I, I showed her. <laughs> looking back, was 2002 a kind of turning point in your career? Because I noticed, you know, the study of Henry James was published then. Accents in the Home was published then and The New Yorker. Was was that something you were aware of at the time that, that, that something, you know, there was a bit of a gear shift going on in your career? Yeah. I mean, gear shift, I would say it's like naught to 60. There was there was no career. There was another career. There was the other thing that I, that I genuinely loved, the teaching, but there's never any question which, which was, what, what did I really want? Yeah, it was incredible. Incredible. Amazing. It's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interacts with people's writing lives. So be as candid or as guarded as you're comfortable with. But how has it worked for you throughout throughout your career and, and, and so mm. forth in terms of how how your you know your finances have worked and, and when your writing has been, been come to a position that can support you? I think I've I've been I've been one of those cases that they say to you don't happen anymore. And they was, I don't know whether it's possible for a, a young writer now to start as I did 20 years ago or 22 years, no, 20 years ago. Um, I don't know whether it's still possible, but certainly in 2000, people were saying to us when they came to visit the MA, nobody now can have a slow burn career. It's a kind of either it's, you know, big straight away or it's nobody. They used to always say Graham Greene's first six novels didn't even make any money. No one, no publisher would sustain that now. Well, I kind of did really. I, I mean, I was already, I was lucky in that I was being supported by my husband. He had a, an income, so I didn't need an income. I then got my job at Bath Spa, so suddenly, money, hooray, that that was marvellous in itself. So to begin with, I didn't need to make a living out of writing. And I didn't make a living out of writing, but I made respectable, modest amounts, which was delicious, and the New Yorker helps because they pay well. And then at some 
point. You, you know, you get good years and bad years, but yes, now now I do. Now I could. I you know, as well as collecting my state pension, I do make a living, a good living out of writing. I'm really one of the lucky ones. But and it was a slow, slow process, and each book has made it a bit me a bit more lucky. And I feel very lucky. But I do think, I do think one shouldn't always listen to the doom mongers that there are publishers out there who want to buy good writing and they will stick with you if you like through the books that are a bit less good or less well reviewed because they have, they think they're in it for the career, not that gambling bit of publishing which one does see I have to say particularly teaching creative writing you just see how there's a weird end of it where people are bidding ludicrous amounts of money for a for a book in the hope that it's the new Sally Rooney or the new so-and-so and so-and-so and then once in a blue moon it is and that's great they get lucky but it's horrible actually for the writer's for whom that doesn't work because you then carry around with you this big unearned advance and no one's interested in your well they might be interested in your second book but they certainly won't be interested in your third so my kind of slightly puritanical moral is you know really good to begin slow and build your career and of course don't be thinking about all that all the time that you, you know nobody should go into writing to make money yeah, we've had other novelists on who have developed similarly sort of fruitful relationships with publishers and stuck with them through their through their whole career for precisely that reason. Um, I notice that you produce new work pretty regularly. So what's your routine like when you're writing or when you're working on something? Are you particularly disciplined when it comes to word count? I mean, there's no forcing it. But, but I suppose I do look at what I do is to sit down to write every day when I'm not doing something else. I didn't today because I knew I was talking to you at five and I had to go and buy some Christmas presents for my oldest son who's coming to stay. So I had to go into town. That was fine. It was a lovely day. Um, but every day I'm not doing something else. I What I want to do more than anything, really, most of the time is write. I love it. And I can do about four hours, but three is fine too. And I will be satisfied and pleased if I've done 400 words. But it isn't a matter of it's only good if the words are good. 400 rubbish words that aren't right are useless or they're worse than useless because you, they'll actually muddy the water and cloud your mind and you won't be able to get the right words. So patience and sometimes if you get 100 words, well, all right, if the 100 words are good and they solved a problem and they put something right that was ugly, then that's good too. Um, I just wanted to say to listeners that Dan Franklin, the um, publisher who Tessa mentioned, we've had on the podcast before, and it's a really good episode, so we recommend that. Um, I wanted to to ask now about plot in in with capital letters, as it were, and, and kind of two questions. And the the first is that another perennial question we put to novelists on the podcast is whether they are a plotter or a plunger, to use the vocabulary that we have developed. So whether they work out narrative in advance or just dive in. And the second one was that, you know, you've sometimes faced some criticism that your your work is not that narrative or not that plot driven. Um, so, yeah, I, I just really, you know, it, how important is plot to you and how do you go about assembling it? I think it's very important, but it, I probably don't think of it as plot. I think of it as story. And I think that's that's the core and the centre. So I, ca I can't imagine thinking of free love without thinking of Phyllis 
leaving one world and entering another and that the, the, the novel's going to be made out of that essential action. And probably at the same time, I won't, I won't sort of give you a spoiler, but uh, there's, there's, there's a secret buried inside the novel and I had that from the beginning and I, I sort of needed that to, to feel there was something to build around. It's almost like, you know when you used to hang those crystals into a glass of solution, crystal solution and gradually the crystal would grow? You, you've got to have, yeah, you've got to have a story for your novel to crystallise around. So takes, and the same with a short story, by the way, and very often what you get imaginatively first with either a novel, but particularly with a short story, is a premise. You think, oh, I know what. Oh, what two sisters and actually they've never met because one was adopted and, and they get together and they're very alike. And that's my premise. But that's not a story. And I, I would so hate to just plunge into writing that without knowing what I was going to do with it. And in fact, I remember that as being part of that breakthrough I've talked about when I started to write the right sentences part of what I discovered was how much I needed to know what came next that I couldn't just write into the dark I think when I was writing those bad novels I was writing like a reader thinking I wonder what happens next I wonder what happens to these people now and I'd write another sentence to see if I could find out which is not how you do it you are the authority and you do need to know what's coming next not not absolutely not in a horrible kind of post-it stuck on the wall and d diagram way it's intuitive and organic and it can change and grow and you'll only ever have a sketchy map and a map is nothing like the land when you're on it and in it it's it's that's otherwise fulfilling the map would just be tedious but I, I do need to know where I'm going and I need to have a story. And I, I think, yeah, the, I mean, they're not plotty stories. They don't tend to have murders in, though, actually. I think in Clever Girl, I possibly have even two. Um, but, you know, that's not the, that, that sort of dramatic, super dramatic thing is not the kind of thing that I write. But I feel that there's so much story in the ordinary stuff that happens Life, life is actually more garish and melodramatic than lots of fiction is. So it, it's just a, it's like a, a trick of the light. I didn't used to be able to see the stories, although I was telling them, they were all around me, everyone was telling them. And then it's like a trick of the light and you suddenly think, oh yes, that, that's the story and that, and how amazing that he did that and then she did that. And that, that stuff is the crystal that the novel or the short story can grow around. That's fascinating that you had the, the spoiler that will not be spoiled um, in your mind before you started writing. Because I, when, I, when I got to that page, I actually audibly gasped um, <laughs> and, my, <laughs> and my partner was um, very surprised. Um, You've said... Do you know where I got that from? Actually, I I had... Because uh, I am always looking for good stories and I, I had thought, well, the story of Phaedra is good, isn't it? Where, um, yeah, where she falls in love with her husband's son. So, yes, that's somewhere I got it from that. I thought that would be a good story and that, that was sitting around there with other 
bits to, to make up the and I had it right from the beginning we may have now slightly spoiled it but um we're coming towards the end of our time so I wanted to ask um about the quotes that you had given in a previous interview where you said there's nothing unpolitical about intimate stories of family life could you unpack that a little bit and is that in response to any critics who have you know maybe diminished or um what's the right word yeah I guess diminished your work because there is a more kind of personal focus I think it is just perennial perennial that it's a perennial critique of domestic fiction in fact the very word domestic fiction seems to have the critique built into it that it's you know that it's small and the tinkling of teacups especially if it's bourgeois domestic fiction and and that it's trivial compared to huge things in the world outside and I actually think I am thinking that all the time while I write I if a writer isn't feeling oh my god what I'm doing is so tiny it's so futile it's so what does it matter in the scale of things what does it matter when there's that war and this climate change if you didn't feel that you wouldn't be a good writer you must feel that and and at best then I suppose one's answer is but I can't do that other thing there are some geniuses there are some writers who can address war I have yet to read a great climate change novel, but oh no, D. H. Lawrence, I reckon, yes, I think he can do it. Although not climate change, but he can do the destruction of the environment and the poison of industrialization like nobody else, brilliantly. The 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 novel when I talked about the experiential flow of the novel and how good it is at the daily. It, it's less good at the abstract. It's less good at the large politics of the world. But lots of really great writers have nonetheless made that, that striving into their subject. And maybe the best I've tried to do, which is small, at least to show in the dailiness of fairly privileged and in a way fairly comfortable lives, show the pressures and the pains and the angsts of us British bourgeoisie now sitting worrying about climate change and feeling our lives insecure and feeling in a transitional era and uncertain of what we are in the West. I mean, if one can get just a little bit of a flavour of that into the dailiness, because because it's there, it's there among all, all of us. We're all doing it all the time. Every time we read The Guardian, it refreshes our angsts, quite rightly too. And and that should be in a book. Just just why should it be in a book? Because one of the things one loves about books, these kind of books, is is that they they catch a, a, a little moment of what it feels like to be alive at that place, that time, just there, just then. And and it doesn't offer to be totalizing or universal. It's miniature in a way. But if you can just be true, get it truthfully, then as we all pass over the weir into oblivion, this art, film, theatre, painting, and fiction it can hold it can it can hold what life is like and that's sort of precious thing i feel for for culture and then in the end it all passes on that kind of point about the universal universality of 
of fiction. I mean, there's been such discussion in publishing in recent years about diversity and about reflecting you know, other communities and things. Hmm. Do, you, do you think that the form of the novel means that, you know, even though you're focusing, as you put it, on these kind of relatively bourgeois communities, that there is a universality? Or do you feel any temptation or even any pressure to, to write about you know, people who don't read The Guardian and things like that? Uh, so almost two separate questions there, because I'm, I'm not sure that I mean to say that I feel that the particular is universal. I kind of think the particular is particular, but it's all there is. There are many, 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 many different particulars. And you, just in some sense, you can only write what you know, although the caveat is you, you'd be amazed what you know. Um, I exactly like the problem of writing about climate change, well, maybe what we can write about is is how we are weighed down by that difficulty, just the dailiness of the weight of it, imaginatively. The whole, the, the question of diversity, I mean, obviously, wonderfully, in a diverse Britain now, we will have diverse characters in our books, just inevitably and naturally by writing about where we are and who we are and who people around us. But somewhere also, as opposed, let's say, to the novels of the 30s or even the 50s, which I love, we are just showing a sensibility of Britain now, which feels uneasy about itself and the history of the West and the role of the West and uneasy globally in ways that people didn't even 50 years ago. And, and, and a novel will register that if it's being alert and astute and, and getting the detail right, it, it will register all of that unease and discomfort and doubt. Thanks very much, Tessa. That was a great interview and wishing you all the very best with your ventures going forward. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Tessa Hadley. She's not on social media and she doesn't have a website, but her latest book, Free Love, is published by Jonathan Cape. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Tessa? I thought it was really interesting in terms of the the kind of chronology, if that's the right word, of a career. You know, this fact that she was published in her 40s later on in life. And I thought she was very thoughtful about that, saying that mm. in retrospect, she feels that it was in the main, a good thing. I think it was it was important that in the interview we we did kind of push back on that and ask how her younger self would have thought about it. Um, and also as a practitioner of the the short story form, and I, you know, she was interesting as well in terms of the the kind of cultural weight of that, saying that she wished there were more places that that did publish them. But you know, she clearly is a is a master at that. I went back and I read one of her New York pieces, which I which I really enjoyed. Um, Rachel, what about you? Well, unfortunately, you've stolen. Uh, my point. <laughs> I thought the conversation was great and we delved into the subject of failure um, in a particularly deep and poignant way. I think it was Howard Jacobson who has also published or found success in his 40s um, and has also sort of thrived since. So I guess it's a salutary lesson for those who are still honing their craft and bashing away and feel like it might not happen for them. Simon, what have you been working on? How is life in the mountains? Life in the mountains is good. Um, it's been intense. I've continued to be um, doing my doing my training in in ski mountaineering, which is also parallel training in French because I've refused to let them speak to me in English. So that has been very good. Um, it's been kind of, you know, physically and I suppose emotionally quite 
exhausting you know new place completely different people operating a different language um and i was also in parallel closing a, a magazine piece so this big um economist 1843 story of mine on on heart surgeons that was in the works for a long time um has now finally been published and it's great that that's um seen the light of day and there's lots of medical people chattering about it online so kind of weird to have two uh completely different things this this new book project and that going on in parallel but i'm glad that that is is closed and, and out in the world um what about you rachel going on in parallel is that a sort of skiing reference as as well or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah possibly god i mean it's all it's also sort of seeping yeah you're immersed in your in. craft um exactly. yeah things are good sort of uh plodding away as usual one of my New Year's resolutions was to read many, many, many more books. So I'm enjoying doing that on my morning commute. What What is your target tempo that you're going I mean, at least one a week, which maybe really? maybe is not that many okay. to some people. I don't know. But yeah, I'm currently on track. So I'm happy with that. And how are you How are you mixing up fiction, nonfiction, genre? Does it not matter? I'm aiming for a mix. Um, it's often work-related and podcast-related. So, you know, if we're, if I, if we're preparing for an interview, okay. I will be reading up on the guest's work. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's just things that have been on my list for a while. So if listeners have any recommendations for things, do send them my way. Sounds like a very laudable project indeed. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikam. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Take Notes Always. We're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us, please do via our website. Many thanks. Goodbye.